You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning and welcome to this morning's event on everyday fragility and stability in Papua New Guinea. We have a mixed in-person and online audience today, and I think many of those in the room are very familiar with the U.S. Institute of Peace. Maybe for those who are not here, uh, just a short word, uh, if you're not quite as familiar, USIP is a national nonpartisan institute based here in Washington, D.C. on the National Mall. Uh, we were created by the U.S. Congress in 1984 to help prevent, mitigate, and resolve violent conflict abroad, and we work around the world in this pursuit. My name is Brian Harding, and I'm the Institute's senior expert for Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. Uh, and for those who know me, they know that my expertise lies in Southeast Asia, uh, so I look forward to turning over uh, the floor in a few minutes to my, my colleagues who, who, who are the real experts on the Pacific Islands and Papua New Guinea. But I was thinking before I, I, I uh, sat down here and, and turned on the microphone, um, what a difference a year makes here at USIP. About a year ago, we were just thinking about what a Pacific Islands program might look like here at USIP. We'd hired our, our first specialist, Camilla Poli. Many of you, I'm sure, have, have read her work. We we're trying to figure out what uh, we might prioritize uh, here at USIP in this vast region. It was also not long after Papua New Guinea had been selected as a focus country under the United States strategy to prevent conflict and promote stability created by the Global Fragility Act. And I, and I think that you know, it was natural that PNG would become a focal point for US, USIP programming in the Pacific Islands region, but definitely this designation uh, created a bit of a North Star for us and some real urgency to, to our work. You'll hear more about our work at USIP a little later, but suffice to say that any success that we've had in developing this program uh, has really been because of the incredible team that we've developed here. Gordon Peake, based at headquarters in Washington, D.C., Ruth Kissam in Port Morrisby, and Zuabe, Linning, uh, Zuabe Tinning in Ley. We also couldn't do our job here without the support of Megan Sullivan, who helped make this event uh, happen today. We're also thrilled to have another collaborator with us in the room today, Dr. Melissa Damien from the University of Andrews, St. Andrews uh, in Scotland, who is one of the co-authors of a recent USIP report on Morobe province. We're thrilled that the stars align to have you here in person uh, in our beautiful building at USIP. I think the attendance here in the room, and this is not the first event that we've had on Papua New Guinea in the last, last month, um, and from online in Papua New Guinea and elsewhere really shows the rising interest and focus on, on the country and the relationship between the United States and Papua New Guinea, and uh, really interesting more specifically on Morobe province itself. And I was fortunate to visit earlier uh, this year, and it truly is a fascinating, uh, fascinating place. Um, and in Melissa and our program staff, Zoabe and Ruth, who hopefully the internet will, will, will deliver to us on the screen here in a moment. I know we're on, in really good hands to, to explore some of these issues of fragility and stability. And finally, I would be remiss to say uh, that there is a hashtag for this event, hashtag PNG stability. Um, I think if, if you use the, this term, and Gordon will explain a little more in a moment, uh, he, he might, uh, or our other panelists might, might address um, people's thoughts and questions. So without any further ado, I'll hand it over to Gordon Peake uh, to formally introduce Melissa, who will get our event going. Thank you. Oh, always get the surprise when your microphone goes that way. Um, good morning, everyone, uh, to everyone in the room, and good evening or good night to uh, colleagues joining us on the other 
side of the, of the world in the southern hemisphere where it's about 10.30 uh, in Port Moresby. And uh, we really appreciate you doing the late shift for us uh, tonight. And I mean, just to pick up a little bit on what, what Brian said, Melissa and I have known each other for about 10 years now, I was thinking. Um, we were colleagues together at the Australian National University in Canberra. And I don't think 10 years ago, Melissa, even two or three years ago, if we tried to put together a, 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 a seminar or a, a discussion about Morobe province, we would have got the attendance that we have. And I think it shows the, the sort of the, the levels of interest um, that there are. And one of the things that we wanted to do in this was have a sort of Q&A um, session between myself, Melissa, and our colleagues, Zwabe and Ruth, but also to begin with to help sort of paint a, uh, a picture um, of what Morobe province is like. Melissa and uh, Zwabe wrote a really excellent paper, um, which is on our website, which is called Lay City at the Heart of Papua New Guinea, which paints the picture, pictures really well with really well-chosen words. But we asked you to put together a slideshow um, just to kind of give you know, your mind's eye view of the thing. And I'll ask you to begin the session by taking us through that, which should take about 10, 10, 15 minutes or so. Thanks, Melissa. Thank you so much, Gordon. Thank you, Brian, for having me here. Good night on Limeblow PNG, wherever you are in the internet world. Um, it is an absolute pleasure and privilege to be here. Um, and um, I, I also never would have thought um, to be able to talk to people who have um, developed a real interest in what's happening in PNG um, as a consequence in part of the Global Fragility Act, but also as a consequence of renewing a relationship between the US and PNG that has been um, dormant for a long time. I was just... Um, Speaking to one of the uh, one of one of our attendees earlier, uh, and noting that this is, I I, th I would say, possibly the most sustained interest that United States has had in PNG since the Second World War. I think this is really significant and welcome. Um, so uh, Gordon asked me to to show you some some pictures. That's that's me. Um, if you want to stay in touch, you can find me on the St. Andrews uh, uh, website. Um, but let's 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 talk about PNG, right? So there it is. You should be familiar with this shape by now, right? It's the eastern half of the island of New Guinea. Morabi Province is um, kind of in the north center of the country. Uh, it is by population the largest province in the country. It is extremely internally diverse. Um, a lot of uh, uh, industries are are located there, and the city of Leh. Right is right there, tucked into the um, tucked into a bay there on a very complex fault system. If you ever have the privilege of lay, you will get some rock and roll happening while you're happening while you're there. It's a very um, uh, seismic city, <laughs> <laughs> which can be exciting and slightly alarming if you're not used to it. Um, and there it is. Right, so uh, you have a, um, a, a built-up city center um, right on the coast uh, between the, uh, the uh, uh, Bumbu and Busu rivers. 
And most of that kind of formal part of the city center is um, the kind of um, legacy of a gold rush town from the 1920s and 30s. Um, it was originally, uh, uh, really, Leh was an airstrip to serve the gold fields of the Waubulolo re region in the interior of Morabi province. And so there's this um, very kind of small, formally built up city center surrounded by most of the city's population, which lives in informal housing, this is a real um, interest of mine, um, informal housing created along the two main roads that come out from the city um, through a variety of, uh, uh, again, informal, non-legal non but not illegal, <laughs> and this is one of the problems, uh, leasehold agreements with customary landowners who, who um, still inhabit the area. Um, and you can see the uh, uh, University of Technology of Papua New Guinea is also located just outside of Leh. This is where all the country's engineers um, are educated, right? So that's, that's the bird's eye view, but that's not really so interesting. What's more interesting is once you get on the ground, and this is what I do as an anthropologist, right? You spend a long time in a place and you get to know it and you get to know the people there. Again, the city center looks like pretty much any any city anywhere in the Pacific, right? You could be almost anywhere. Um, and so for me, what's much more interesting is getting out of the city center and into the settlements. And here's where things start to look really different. Um, uh, Ley is famous for its very heavy rainfall. <laughs> uh, if you have the privilege of going, you will be often told by somebody, welcome to Rainy Ley. Uh, and uh, its unsealed roads don't fare very well in these conditions. Um, also in the settlements, there's um, fairly patchy infrastructure. Closer to the city, you'll have electricity. You might have plumbing. You might not. Um, and the further out you go, you're, you're living in an urban environment, but not, with, not really with urban amenities, apart from um, a fairly decent public transport system. And so what I'm interested in as a researcher, there we go, um, is what people in the settlements of Leh are doing to, to help themselves, right? There's not a lot of interest from uh, politicians for the most part, unless they want, you know, unless it's an election year. Um, there's not uh, really a lot of resources at the provincial level. You know, with the best will in the world, the the, um, the provincial development officers uh, can't do a, a lot with the very minimal budgets that they have access to. Um, and so, what I've been working on since about 2016 is kind of self-help initiatives. Um, in the settlements around Ley, right? Um, just because people are, um, you know, don't have access to a lot of resources, uh, doesn't mean they can't organize themselves to to try to make things better in their communities. And this is what I've been working on. Um, this, for example, was um, an effort by a local youth group to try to address um, a, a sort of spike in attacks on vehicles, kind of random attacks, not, not really sort of carjacking, but just you know, throwing rocks at vehicles and um, kind of causing chaos on the main road coming out of Ley. So they held a big rally, they, there were lots of speeches, there was a lot of prayer, there was a lot of popular music. Um, and this is the kind of mix of activities that I think, um, in, in my experience, Papua New Guineans find really stimulating and interesting to think with, right? That you combine sort of pop culture with church culture with, um, you know, something that looks 
might look like political action, but it's fairly apolitical. It's really just, you know, we want to raise attention um, um, to a problem that we are having in our communities, and how do we how do we do this? Um, and this is Wabe, right? So this is this is who I've been doing research with since 2016. Who I and I hope she's on the call somewhere. Me too. Me, right. <laughs> so, so a lot of the work that she and I have done in the last several years um, kind of came to a grinding halt after 2019 for obvious reasons, uh, but uh, hopefully will be restarted again. Um, is working with uh, women's groups in particular in the settlements around and and. Um, outlying villages near Ley to see what these groups were doing again um, to, to, to further their own interests in developing their communities, which in this context means keeping kids in school, um, keeping kids out of gangs, um, you know, maybe getting access to some resources for their communities, maybe getting access to some small business loans, um, maybe getting access to some adult literacy programs. Different communities had different agendas, but they, they had a lot of things in common, which was trying to support their kids and trying to support themselves to, um, to support their kids and to support their families, because there are not a lot of employment opportunities um, around Lay. So this is, this is Wabe doing her thing. I love the photograph because it shows her in action, right? Um, and hey, go, there we go. And this is, this is the kind of thing that I'm hoping to look at in the future. Ley has very few um, formal developments outside of the city center. This, this was one that happened by accident in the early 1980s as the result of some catastrophic flooding that happened um, near the University of Technology campus. And it was a rare, instance of a, a disaster promoting an actually creative development response, in this case from Australia, uh, where some Australian planners came up with a, um, a plan to create a, a, proper, a proper suburban subdivision for Papua New Guinea. And this was the plan they came up with. And what's interesting is kind of, you know, the, the sort of how it started, how it's going meme, right? You all know that one by now. Um, and this is, this is it. So that's, that's, that's what it looked like. That's what it was supposed to look like. And it, it's kind of come out that way, right? They, they, they managed to, to, to create this sort of honeycomb plan that the, uh, that the Australians had come up with. Um, not all the schools and aid posts that were meant to be built have materialized, um, and rather significantly, <clears throat> the city of Ley has seen fit to locate a dump um, <laughs> in the southeast corner of the subdivision, uh, which make of that what you will. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm quite interested in how this is, again, a, a, an unusual example of formal housing um, growing up in one of the settlements. But most of the settlements don't look like this. This is, this is, this is quite unique. Um, most of them are much more sort of DIY, much more um, um, built around informal but significant relationships between groups of people. Often it's an entire ethnic group from some part of the province um, or some other part of Papua New Guinea, 
and a local landowner to sort of to to decide you know we can build some houses here and we will lease them long lease the land long term from you so this is quite unusual um, and the way these kinds of relationships come up are through um, what I started calling efficacious personalities um, and here's one of my favorites this is Anzeraga she um, is a community leader uh, in one of the northern settlements of Ley and wears many hats, and that's, that's what makes these efficacious personalities able to do the things that they do. So she's a village court magistrate. She's a leader in her church. Uh, uh, which one is it? Uh, 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 Seventh-day Adventists. She's a leader in her church. She's, um, she ran for a long time a marching and singing group for women who had survived domestic violence, you know, to kind of get them seen in a way that was publicly sort of palatable. Um, and she's full of energy and enthusiasm. You can kind of see that in the photograph. Um, and she's one of these amazing people that Zwabe and, and I were meeting all over the lay settlements who are you know, doing a lot of things with very few resources. And this is something I really want to emphasize. Right? This is her in action again in her capacity as a magistrate. The reason um, she and her fellow magistrates were looking so serious is that they're speaking to a woman who's, who's just, um, just run away from uh, an abuse of husband. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that that dilapidated police station that they're sitting in has since been rebuilt, so that's great. But I, I want to underline again how, how much these efficacious personalities are doing with how little in terms of what the kinds of material um, and infrastructural resources that they can muster to try to keep things working in their communities. And they will also act in informal capacities. This reconciliation um, meeting between two families that Zwabe and I attended in another settlement had been going on for years, kind of observed by the village court magistrates, but it was not facilitated by then. It was not, um, it was not a legal process that they were following. They, it was an entirely informal process facilitated by people called committee. These are, these are um, in, a committee is one person, <laughs> but they can also be a member of a committee. <laughs> Um, these were f these uh, uh, reconciliation meetings of this kind are facilitated by people who are appointed by the local landowner to keep peace on their block. So there are entire infrastructures of um, conflict resolution that exist in the settlements that not many NGOs are, for example, are paying much attention to, and they and they ought to, because these are the ones who are making sure that conflict doesn't break out, which it occasionally does if meetings of this kind don't work. Um, and, I, and I've ended with this one, um, because one of the things that I was hoping to talk about today is how important it is to concentrate on um, the youth bulge in Ley and elsewhere in PNG. Um, a, a huge proportion of the country's population is under 30. And um, this is, you know, obviously a massive human resource, but also um, a, a, a population who are not particularly well served by the current infrastructures, educational and employment and otherwise, of, of the country. And again, when they organize to do stuff, you know, whether it's an anti-crime initiative or whether it's a sports day on, on Independence Day, everybody's wearing the PNG flag in this photograph, um, uh, you know, they, they make wonderful things happen. And the other thing I love about this photograph is it's young women um, who uh, are, are 
also rather poorly served by the the kind of current structure of the educational system and 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 some social systems um, and that's something I can talk about today as well if if you'd like but it's it's great to see young women having fun <laughs> and um, and organizing something for themselves that is is stimulating and interesting for them that's my last slide thank you that was super um and I'm glad as you were speaking, there's always interesting what's happening behind the scenes. We were trying to get some of our PNG colleagues online, which we've now managed to do, which I'm delighted by. Um, I'd just like to sort of, one of the things that's really striking as I was sort of watching these slides sort of out of the corner of my eye is what's there, but also what's not there. Um, and what's not there is kind of something that you and I might think about as state or government, or kind of, I mean, you mentioned the absence of NGOs. So, and instead, what you have is these kind of efficacious personalities, to use this great phrase that you have. And there's another lovely phrase that you and Zwabe used in the paper that, uh, that you published at USIP about how so many of these initiatives fly under the radar of, of, uh, of donors, of the state itself, because they're not visible um, to us. You know, they don't have a nameplate and a and a P.O. box and an, and an email address. And I think that's totally right. I, mean, I think that's the reality of, of, of conflict and stability in, in Papua New Guinea, these efficacious individuals. So I guess a question for you is, like, how does one, whether one be the United States, whether one be the United States Institute of Peace, whether one be sort of people that are in institutions that are want to sort of help in this as part of this strategy, um, that the U.S. has. How do you work with that context? How do you um, how do you how do you ensure that you're working kind of with the grain, but also not flooding it so much that that it's um, that it's that it means that the Zwabes of the world and the the Anne Zarigas of the world are not able to do the, the work that they do. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, and then I'm going to hopefully get our colleagues from PNG online. Thank you for that, Gordon. Um, I mean, something something that uh, continually surprised me um, in my work with Zwabe um, between 2016 and 2019 in Lay um, is how many of these tiny community organizations there are, right? There there are, and 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 their sort of awkward relationship with large kind of national organizations. For example, the um, you know Papua New Guinea has a national organization of women. Um, but there, there, there often seems to be a disconnect between, say, a national body in the capital port Moresby and what happens in Ley. And you know, there are a lot of reasons why I was focused on Ley. Right? It's PNG's second city. It's the economic engine room of the country. But it also just doesn't get. It's not in this kind of arc light of international attention that Port Moresby is in. And um, and so there's all these little organizations all over Ley that um, are doing all kinds of initiatives, whether it's um, anti-domestic violence, whether it's sort of, you know, developing a, a, a craft industry for, in a village, whatever, um, and nobody sees them because they're not in Port Moresby and they're not big enough to attract the attention of the international donor community. So they're just kind of getting on with it, <laughs> right? Some of them are supported by churches, that is one way to, to kind of engage with these um, groups. This is how Zwabe and I found them. Um, we went to a lot of church 
<laughs> um, in order to meet people and um, find out what was going on in particular communities. So the church is usually the heart of sort of community organizing in a lot of the settlements. Um, it's not the only way to find people, but it's the fastest way to find people, um, and especially women's groups, um, because most churches in PNG have some kind of a women's fellowship or a mama group or something of this kind. Um, and so that's how you find these organizations. Um, in terms of how, <laughs> how to see them, if you are a large international donor organization, um, you have to get people like Zwabe and Ruth and other people who've been working in the space for years who are local, right? Um, I'm, I'm a foreign researcher who, one, got lucky in the people that I've met, and two, who's been working in Papua New Guinea since the 1990s, so I know how to find things there. Um, but if you are an organization with not a lot of time, you've got to work with local actors and they can and get them to introduce you to the local community leaders. Um, there isn't a lot of state presence outside of the capital um, and outside of the provincial capitals. This is something that anthropologists like me and other social scientists working in PNG have been writing about for years. Um, the state in PNG is, um, in some respects, um, detached from a lot of um, the, the sort of concerns of people's everyday lives, you know, they it does its best, right? Um, but again, there are there are some structural obstacles to sort of state efficacy in terms of getting out, again, outside of provincial capitals and especially outside of Port Moresby, to um, to actually address what people are are concerned about, um, which is the stuff they're concerned about everywhere. It's education, it's healthcare, um, and in places like Lay, it's it's stuff as basic as a road that doesn't erode with every rainy, rainy season. Um, and it's about, you know, um, making sure, again, kids stay in school and don't get diverted into other activities. It's really, really basic stuff. Um, and it's unglamorous stuff, but it's what matters. Yeah, I could. Yeah, I mean, the, the word that was dancing around my mind was mundane and basic, yeah. you know, which is... Yeah. Um, but again, as an anthropologist, I'm focused on the everyday. Um, and the everyday is where is where people are both encountering problems and finding solutions. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, if you, I wonder if you can just flick back to the the map that you did of of, of lay the kind of Google map. The Google map. Yeah. Because um, I mean, the, the, I just want to pick up on something that you said, Melissa, which is you know how once you go beyond the provincial capital. Um, you often rarely, very see any sort of semblance of state there. So when I was last in Lay in September last year, we went out to Markham Bridge, which is on, I'm looking at it kind of on the left um, of my of my screen, um, which is sort of the, the, the pathway to the, the gold fields, you know, in, in a way. But it's really striking that once you go beyond there on these very rutted roads, um, the absence of state that, that there is. So it almost like Lay itself is its own ecosystem, but also you've got this whole province of Morobe as well, and sort of thinking back to the kind of strategy. Um, you've got Lay, obviously, as the center, but you've almost got different places in, 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 one, in one province. You've got Lay, and then you've got Morobe as well. I'm going to see just, I'm going to check with my colleagues at the, ba the back of the room as to whether um, Zuabe and Ruth are online. So Ruth's there. Hi, Ruth. And no picture of Zuabe. No picture of Zuabe. <laughs> Hi, Gordon. Hey, how are you? 
I'm good. I'm good. I had to offer a silent prayer as we kind of moved there as to whether we were going to um, going to going to see you. Zwabe, I think is I see her name on the screen, but I don't see a, uh, I don't I see she's muted and um, and has a blank screen. So um, so I'll, I'll go for there. So it's great to see it's great to see you guys. I'm going to just. I know it's harder to. Um, uh, hey, Zoabe, how are you? Hello. She's, I think this is a pretty good parable for how difficult it is to do programming in Papua New Guinea because often things don't don't work as you as you th- as you think. Ruth, it's often sort of um, easier for other people to praise other people rather than talk about yourself, and that's true no matter what culture. You are, but Melissa's men- and Zwabe have mentioned this in, in, in their research about the importance um, about the public. Hi. Hi. Hi, we can hear you. you okay, I, I, what I'll, I, I can sort of see you sort of, sort of ghostly figures of Zwabe, but not, not anything else. What I'll, what I'll do, Ruth, is, is kind of ask you to maybe talk about it in, in Zwabe's stead while we try to get her, um, get her connection worked out, which is one of the things, that, and I'd love to get your reflections on it as well. Uh, Melissa, is one of the themes that courses through your research in, in lay and through Ruth's work as a kind of, as a community activist, as a leader, is, uh, is working on Papua New Guinea's kind of intimate partner violence problems. Um, and I mean, we all know this kind of statistics that, that there is of it. And, but yet the work that, uh, that Zwabe is, is doing, that other efficacious individuals are doing, I think Ruth is very much an efficacious um, individual as well, almost flips the script in a way. And it works both works on focusing on the perpetrators of that violence and the kind of the social milieu within which that violence is is generated. Um, Ruth, I'll maybe ask you first about maybe the importance or the challenges of working in this space of kind of men's um, men's behavior change. And before I do, I want to recognize that it's not just Papua New Guinea where this is happening. I was reading the newspaper um, this morning here and there was talking about, it was in the metro section, but it was talking about, you know, anti-gun initiatives that are happening with kind of at-risk um, youth and uh, offenders here in the District of Columbia. So it's important to kind of sometimes when we think of the place far away, that actually it's the place very close to home as well. But great to get your thoughts, Ruth, first on kind of men's behavior change initiatives and sort of the, you know that space, because it's something I think that more and people are 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 kind of aware of, but great to get your kind of on the ground perspective on that. And then hopefully we'll get Zwabe worked out while you and you and uh, and Melissa speak. Thank you. Over to you. Thank you, Gordon. Um, and thank you, Melissa, too, for that uh, wonderful presentation on uh, on lay. Um, I'll be speaking on uh, my behalf, but that at the same time um, on Zwabe's um, work um, while she's getting a, a, a video fixed. When you look at Papua New Guinean men, they're deeply patriarchal. We've been in this space for a very long time. Um, we've been doing this work where it's deeply patriarchal. This space is deeply patriarchal. Our gender norms are very defined. Um, and because of that, it, it's very challenging to work with men. Men are told not to show their emotions. And I think that this is 
also universal, where other men are also told that men don't cry, men don't do you know certain things. Well, in Papua New Guinea, it's very pronounced. So when you have women that have now advanced in their roles, and they're not doing the traditional roles that they're supposed to, we've seen a rising number, especially in urban areas, which is, um, which is a bit, you wouldn't expect this, but it's actually the urban areas that we have a lot of numbers. Um, the data confirms that it's households from semi-urban to urban, and from especially households that, you know, with men that are educated women that are educated. It's those households that have high incidences of um, gender-based violence. Um, when it comes to sorcery accusation, then it's the rural areas um, that has the high incidences. So when you see this happening in um, urban areas, it, it shows that power has been reversed. And because of that, men don't wanna talk about what it means to sort of vacate that seat where they're the ones that are in power and now they are sharing it with women and when we are opening up programs for men to actually have a safe space to talk about especially if you're a woman um a lot do not come forward so it's either through churches or through individuals who actually respond to these you know needs and melissa going back to gordon's question about i mean asking about how do we support this informal structure that is actually filling a gap uh, because that's what's happening in Lay. You have a lot of these individuals, agencies that are popping up in their communities, responding to needs in their communities, whether it is in gender-based violence, whether it's in um, alcoholism, teen pregnancy, whether it is in, you know, all these young people that are um, doing things that community deems to be criminal. Um, you see men and women rising up in their own communities not because they want to actually be part of the so-called civil society movement and apply for fundings, no, it's because they're seeing a need and they're actually responding to that need. And these kind of people, are they don't meet your everyday um, definition of organization, community-based organization that can easily apply for funding. They don't, they don't meet the structural requirements of big donor agencies. Um, neither do they, even for their own countries as well, they don't. But if you look at their agencies, they are the ones that are actually holding the, that society together. They are the ones that community looks up to. In the absence of formal structures, it's these individuals, these agencies um, fill in the gaps. And, um, and that's where a lot, people like Zuabe, um, people in communities where they could be a pastor, um, they could be a village court official, they could be a magistrate, a village court um, or a, a ward councillor, or a, just a woman leader, maybe part of the National Council of Women. Whoever they are, when they stand up, their agency is the one that actually access the informal structure that provides that, um, that form of sort of um, resolve in that community. And these are the people that are the champions in the community that though they don't fall within a, a, a definition that you would say are formal, they actually fill that gap. And it's that challenging space that how do we now empower these individuals so that they could keep doing what they're supposed to be doing. And a lot of them are men. Um, and, and most of them are, are members of church, like Melissa said, members of churches that are doing this, but then they don't, like I said, they don't fall in the everyday 501c3 um, charity body, they don't. 
Some of them, most of them are individuals. Some of them are faith-based um, organizations, or we call them FBOs or CBO, community-based organizations. Some of them are not even registered, women's group, youth group. But then they do that, they fill that gap where state is not um, present, they are. And, um, and we've got amazing examples of that right across the country. So I, th I think Zwabe still were... We're grappling with network issues, I think, over in, over in Lay. So it's it's um. So I'll, I'll maybe ask. Uh, it is a classic, and I think it's actually like I'm sort of um, uh, um, shows. I think how difficult it is to program in, in, in or do anything sometimes in Papua New Guinea because there's these you know the 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 kind of catchword of the country is the land of the unexpected, and sometimes that's great, and sometimes it's it's not so great. Um, it'd be great to kind of. I think you've actually sort of given the the answer, actually, in a way, Melissa and, and Ruth, which is that there's almost like a, a gap here, which is there's a state, and then there's these organizations that are trying to sort of, that are doing the work. But it strikes me that one of the sort of potential roles for anyone wanting to work in Ley or work in Marube or work anywhere is to help those organizations get the accoutrements that are kind of needed in order to, you know, to, to do that. Um, the kind of organizational spine of that. And every organization needs that. I mean, there's a whole group of people behind us at USIP here that are able to bring this this event together. I think when when Ruth was speaking, and it's a it's a country that is has similarities, but not entirely adjacent to Papua New Guinea as of Timor-Leste, where I spent a lot of my early career, where one of the most successful programs I've ever seen was a, a program that's now called Nabilan, which in Tetun means light. But it's a program about uh, helping um, a lot of these efficacious personalities that you're talking about become registered under the rubric of the state and helps with all the back office stuff that everyone knows that we need, you know, funding, or not fun uh, reports to funders, uh, fun funding. Um, and great to get your thoughts on that. And also this idea that there's something I think that's unique in the USAID's um, policies on kind of localization is the idea of giving core funding to organizations. And one of the reasons why th these, this program works so well in Timor-Leste was because of core funding, because it enabled people who are working in very, very precarious environments to not spend so much of their time chasing funding because they knew that the funding was coming. Yeah, this is this is really important, and it also um, addresses something that Ruth has brought up that I think is absolutely critical, which is one the notion of a gap between um, kind of the, the the sort of good intentions of the state in setting up things like the National Council of Women or um, uh, the you know national sort of gender initiative, and what actually happens because resources don't don't. Aren't, aren't devoted to these initiatives, let's put, if I can put it so bluntly. Um, but also, um, I want to bring up something um, that uh, has recently been kind of very nicely articulated to me by my own PhD student. She's, uh, she grew up in Port Moresby, but she's married to Lay um, and has recently completed a period of field work in Markham Bridge, so this little community outside of Lay that Gordon pointed to on the map. She's called Mary Fario, um, and she, when she's not doing a PhD in Scotland, she's an officer at the National Research Institute in Port Moresby. And she, um, she's been calling my attention 
attention to uh, a, a, a really nice concept in Tokpizin. This is the national Creole language uh, spoken all over PNG. Um, and the concept is Wokpun uh, One Time. And it's just working together, working together um, as partners. Um, Wokpun One Time does not, um, it's not a top-down relationship. It's not a patron-client relationship. It is, we, we are working together at, at, at the same time. Um, and this is something that Mary was hearing over and over again from the women community leaders she was speaking to in and outside of Lay, um, who were expressing, I suppose exhaustion would be a good word, um, in terms of the relationships that they had had with development partners who were expecting these community leaders to muster their own resources. And they, I want to stress, these are not people with lots of resources. Um, they muster their relationships, get women together to have meetings with NGOs, endless meetings, endless meetings, so many meetings, um, to talk to the NGOs and talk about what the problems were, and then so get those women in, send those women back home, provide food, provide shelter um, for these meetings. And kind of the non-recognition that they were getting from their development partners in these processes, and um, what's really important to 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 do uh, in this space, if you're going to seriously engage with the people who are filling that gap, as as Ruth has put it, um, is to work with them, and to recognize what they do, and to compensate them for the tremendous amounts of labor that they put into getting people together for NGOs to talk to. Um, and not just to compensate them, but to sort of stay in touch with them, to have an ongoing relationship. Papua New Guinea runs on social relationships. I, this, this is a truism, but it's, it's both um, where the sources of conflict are and it's where the sources of stability are. Um, and the way that people become efficacious personalities is the number of different kinds of relationships that they are able to muster in order to get stuff done and fill in those gaps of, um, that, of, of service provision that you might normally expect to be the job of the state, but that doesn't really happen that way in PNG. Yeah, I've got this sort of vision plan around in my mind of one of those giant Swiss army knives that you've got to be in order to kind of move right. and do various different, <laughs> different things. So Abby, are you there? No. Yes, I am. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, so praise the Lord. Um, uh, we, we've been talking about you while we've been um, doing about the work on men's behavior change. I'd love to sort of get your thoughts on, on that. Um, and also maybe it would be great to get you to talk a little bit about, we've talked a lot, um, Melissa's talked a lot about Leh, the city at the heart of Morobe province, city at the heart of Papua New Guinea. Um, but also to get us, if you could paint uh, uh, some pictures for us of what the um, uh, Morobe province looks like beyond um, beyond Leh. You told me a wonderful story last week about a community that came down from Finchhaven, which is you know one of these sort of old German settlements um, and the challenges they had. So great to get your 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 sort of thoughts on that. And then what we're going to do for the audience in the room and for people. Uh, online is we're going to sort of try to throw it out um, to to people here to ask questions to uh, to Zwabe, to Ruth, to uh, to Melissa. If you're online, then it's a matter of typing in your question, and our colleague Megan here will uh, will will read it read it out for for us. So 
that's just kind of a preview of what's going to happen after Zoabe finishes speaking. Um, uh, but over to you, Zoabe. Great to see you and great glad that you're um, able to join us. Thank you. I think that's the real challenge that we have here in LA City. Um, we don't have good internet and electricity, so these are what the, the realities we are experiencing here. Anyway, with the um, male behavior program that I'm overseeing here in Lay, um, the purpose I'm focusing on male is because um, the Melanesian culture and the Christian religious belief is um, kind of embedded in, the, in that, where it influences a lot of um, male's attitude and behavior. So generally men, as fathers and husbands, they play a significant role in leadership and decision making. And um, because they are instilled with this um, strong self-ego, most times they are misinformed and misled, and they don't realize women could play similar roles as them and share that responsibility with them. But um, through um, modernization, we have seen, I mean, there's a change coming up with men in their attitude towards women. Um, basically, the, the training that I'm, I'm usually running is focusing on um, seeing men as solutions to the problem and not um, problems themselves. So it's like um, helping men to realize the potentials that they have in them and create positive changes with what they have so um they're able to create an equal uh, a space that is equal for women to participate with them in decision making and leadership so um while you know implementing this um program over almost 10 years i've realized that culture is something that we cannot change easily and it's like Ruth had said, it's deeply rooted in, in men and, and with the ego that they have, um, most of the time we struggle with it in helping them to understand that women can do similar things as they are and they can give us a space to participate equally with them, especially in um, decision making. Yep, um, recently we had a conflict out in one of the rural districts outside of Lay. And um, there was a kind of a fight between tribe, tribes. And um, it had been going on for years from the leaders that um, I've um, interviewed. It, it was around like almost eight years they've, they've been having that fight in the village and it had not been solved until just recently um, the, the community leaders came into the city and asked if one of the um, officers from the community development, the president of the youth council to go and, you know, do some intervention and mitigate the violence and um, negotiate for peace between the tribes. So um, just today I had an interview with him just to understand what he will be doing when he gets home to um, address this issue. And he told me it's 
it's not the formal system that we'll be using to um, mitigate this violence and bring the two parties together to establish peace. They, um, he told me there's a traditional um, approach that they will use where they will work with the cultural leaders, like people from the village. Uh, they, have, they hold specific roles in, in uh, different areas in, in the community. And he had to go through those leaders to um, negotiate on each side of the tribe and calm them down before he can go in and bring them all together to um, talk about peace and establish that um, peace. So it was quite interesting because it was um, everything that they were going to do or they will be doing is connected to culture and tradition. And with the process that they're, they're going to use, it's, it's like none of the modern concept is, is in there. So it's, it's like everything is about culture and tradition. It's like going back to um, our ancestral days to address this issue. So what he told me was this issue came about because of, you know, culture and traditional reasons. So we have to go back to the root and address it in that manner so we can, you know, mitigate this violence and bring about peace in the community. So um, just to give you a general picture, like um, in Lay, we, it's a city and the population there is um, multicultural. We have the international community and the national, and we have the 22 provinces here in the city. When you go out to the rural districts, um, small towns out from the city, it's made up of um, indigenous population and they are very rich in culture. So the approaches that we use in the city are quite different from those in the rural. Um, in the city, they usually resort to formal court system or village court to solve problems. But in the village, they use that village court system, which our government approves, and they use a lot of um, traditional approaches to approach um, violence situations in the community. So and with that, I see that the chieftaincy um, leadership is still significant here. But when I found out from the person that I interviewed today, he came from, I mean, he's an inheritance of a chief. And he holds that um, leadership value where the, the both parties who were in conflict, they recognize that from um, what he inherited from his um, ancestors as chief. So even though he was in town, working in town, um, because the problem went on for so long, they had to call him to the village to sort out that issue. And with respect to what he holds as a chief and, a, and an ancestor of a chief that the community respect, they had to um, bring him in to bring these two tribes together to resolve the issue. So that was... a. Uh, something that interesting to learn today from um, this particular uh, person from the government. 
So the government kind of, they depend on such people too to get into the community to resolve conflicts. Um, the officers themselves usually don't go down and speak to the people to um, bring about peace. It, it's the community leaders that the uh, community respects. They give them this uh, space of authority to you know, mitigate violence and bring about peace between two parties that come into conflict. Yeah. Right. Thank you so much. I'm really glad that we kind of persisted and kept you on because I think that it's such a great story that has so many different, I think it probably resonates with so many different people in different ways. But for me, it shows that, you know, that, you know, beyond the tarmac road, the importance that there is of, you know, of, of customary authority and even on the tarmac road, the fact that the importance of customary authority and also it kind of resonates with the point that that you made, Melissa, about the unpaid labor, because this individual that is working on this, I guess he's being paid by the by the chief, but to do that requires, you know, a huge amount of, you know, Digicel credit for one, for one thing to, to begin with. So it's 9.30 here, it's 11.30 at night in, in Papua New Guinea, and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really pleased that our so many people are still on online. Um, I didn't really invite you always always dread asking this because there's always this sort of deathly silence. But the, um, some questions from the audience, um, whether you're online um, uh, or if you're if you're on thing, and please identify yourself. Um, come in. I'm going to look at Megan for sort of to see if we've got him. But I can see somebody moving with his hand to the microphone, so that's encouraging. Uh, Thank you uh, uh, to the presenters and thank you, Gordon. Uh, my name is uh, Jim Dallajakama. I'm uh, a consultant working on uh, fragility and uh, resilience in the Pacific, including uh, Papua New Guinea in, in the autonomous region of Bougainville. So um, I have not yet been to Morabi province, but when the earth moves, uh, as it did last September, over an ROR, we lose our internet. So we're all connected uh, in uh, various ways. Um, in Bougainville, I work with uh, community government, and for those who are not familiar with uh, community government in Bougainville, it is uh, very unique because it has equal numbers of men and women, and currently 45 of the 47 chairs of community government are women. And if you look at those 45 chairs uh, and the two deputy chairs, I think you find 45 or 47 very efficacious women. Um, their community organizers, they're incredibly well networked. Uh, so uh, two, one observation or two questions. Uh, I think Ruth uh, mentioned uh, that uh, some of the efficacious uh, uh, personalities are ward members. So, and Gordon has noted uh, this, the gap between the state and uh, the communities. So I'd just be interested to know more because one of the, the people you cited was a magistrate. Uh, hear more about some of the growing uh, connections between the formal institutions of state, including local government and these efficacious personalities uh, and how important getting them into local government, for example, would be to acquiring more of the resources or getting access to more of the resources of the state for their communities. The second question in related to that is um, some of the most efficacious uh, uh, women I see, um, not in necessarily their capacities with community government in Bougainville, but as chairs of the, uh, the school board, 
uh, get access to the national uh, members' funds and the uh, uh, Bougainville House of Representative members' funds, which is the main appears to be the main source of state funds that they can get into their communities. So, how is that working in Morabe? Okay. Thank you. So, no, um, I'm so delighted that you were almost jumped out of the chair because you looked so excited to answer the question. I'm going to give it over okay. to you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, on on the point of um, this 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 large um, representation of women that you're seeing in um, in in um, uh, community and local government bodies in in Bougainville, um, you know, this <laughs> anthropologists have have kind of banged on about the importance of social organization for as long as our discipline has existed, um, and this is one of the reasons why Bougainville is matrilineal. <laughs> the internal diversity of Papua New Guinea and its neighboring um, islands uh, is is something that has you know attracted people like me for over a hundred years, um, and one of the reasons that this really matters in the present day is that it it will have effects on how how representation in 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 both uh, community organizations and local government will look and how it will work. Um, so Bougainville is one of the um, part of the sort of matrilineal fringe around Papua New Guinea. So you actually have what that means is that women own land. This is really important, um, and that land ownership moves through them. And so this does inflect things like local politics in really interesting ways. So I just wanted to mention that. But also, um, in terms of, to, to your question about um, the relationship between people holding both formal and informal roles as efficacious personalities and serving as what Gordon described as the sort of Swiss Army knife approach to getting things done, if you've got lots of different functions that you can fulfill. Um, it, it, a bit of shameless self-promotion, I've edited a book about this <laughs> um, that is coming out later this year with the Australian National University Press. It's called Grassroots Law in Papua New Guinea. Watch this space. And in this book, Book, myself and the other authors who contributed to it are writing about exactly this issue of how particular um, formal structures, such as the village courts, um, which were introduced at independence in 1975, have integrated in really interesting and sometimes unexpected way with local ways of doing things of the kind that Zwabe has been describing, right? So you might get somebody with some kind of hereditary leadership position who's then um, also sometimes holding a village court role or is kind of coordinating with people who are village court officials to try to resolve conflict. And often, one of the things that comes up again and again and again in that book that will come out later um, is that um, while on the one hand village courts and village court officials in PNG might be described as exceeding their jurisdiction in strictly legal terms, and yes, they are, but also they have to because there isn't anyone else doing what they're doing, especially in rural parts of the country or especially in um, far-flung provinces that are far from any provincial capital or the national capital or in an autonomous region like Bougainville where, um, which uh, uh, has a interesting relationship with the Papua New Guinean state, let's put it that way. So 
the people who are actually out in rural areas, in um, provinces that don't have big, powerful capitals like Ley, um, they are dependent on these efficacious personalities who might hold hold some kind of official capacity. They might be a village court official. They might be a ward counselor. These are really often um, uh, really important brokers between um, um, state and and um, local communities um, when they're doing their jobs and when they can get the attention of the state. Um, who also undertake um, a great deal of, um, again, unrecognized, always unpaid, all of this is a voluntary labor, in order to do things like resolving conflicts between groups of the kind that Zuabe was describing. So there's, there's, there's a sense in which people who hold official roles as, say, magistrates or ward counselors have to also take on a lot of unofficial duties in order to make things work in their communities. Okay, great. Um, thank you. That was very nicely done with your plug for your book as well. Um, <laughs> uh, Megan is our, our colleague here. Is is been fending questions online, and I think we'll probably try to ask these to to Ruth and uh, and and Suave. So hope your internet connection is good, so you can kind of hear it coming from on high. Megan, over to you. Yes, so we have a question from Robert Baskins who asks, within urban areas, are there any formal efforts within grade schools to normalize perceptions of women as equal to men? I'd want to hand that over to Zwabe and Ruth first because they'll have more recent experience of this than I do. Over to sure, you I'll go first and um, Zwabe can uh, go on later. So. There is a lot of um, effort that is being done, Rob. We've got organizations like um, The Voice Inc., which is based in um, a lot of universities that does some um, leadership, um, as well as um, civic education, but also talks about the role of um, women as leaders. We also have another organization called Equal Playing Field, which is a public union organization as well. Um, it's doing an amazing job around um, seeing girls um, as equal to men. And it's always been part of, um, I think even in schools, girls are, are encouraged by their parents. Um, and most urban areas, but in rural areas, I think that's, that's a challenge. Uh, again, you're looking at tribal, where girls have to go to another tribe's land to go to, for education. Uh, parents would favor the boys to do that because it's much safer for boys, um, not so much for girls. Um, but in urban areas, there is a lot of um, there is a lot of work in encouraging girls, and and also there's a lot of um, funding that is being put into this space as well for girls' education, which is very encouraging to see. Um, that is also encouraging a lot of girls to go to school as well, and and, and you know um, getting parents to see the value that a girl adds um, to her own family, to her own life as well as her own family as well. So I think I'll ask um, Zuabe to probably add on. suspicious frozen screen look um well while we wait i'm gonna uh, megan's told me that we've got one more question then i'll sort of maybe get throw that from get megan to ask the question uh and maybe if there's any others from the audience grateful if you could identify yourselves then we maybe might take a kind of 
I can't remember what the collective noun for a lot of questions is, but like we'll take two or three questions and and um, and put them to our team, and then I've got, I want to ask Ruth a little question about the other uh, province that is at the center of this uh, U.S. effort um, and strategy, which is Hella Province, which is adjacent um, to your your home province in the Highlands. So we'll we'll come back to you on on that. I'm just giving you the kind of five minute warning, um, Ruth. So this question comes from Shira Lipman, who asks, what are potential and or emerging threats and challenges to the security of Papua New Guinea um, with increasing tension in the Indo-Pacific? Um, sorry, my voice is kind of quiet. Hi, um, Melissa, really nice to meet you. I'm Camilla Poli. I work on the Pacific Islands team here. Um, Ruth and Zawabi, really nice to see your faces. Um, I wanted to ask a question about um, you talked about these efficacious personalities and you know all of the work being done in lay um, and it struck me that when we were there uh, last year um, you know there were so many communities from all over Papua New Guinea in lay now and and maybe you could talk about um, and Ruth and Zuabe could talk about um, you know how lay is becoming kind of a microcosm of Papua New Guinea and you know what lessons lay people in lay have to teach um, you know other places as well thank you Okay, great. Any more? One more. Uh, first of all, thank you so much. I'm a human geographer and Africanist, so so much of what you shared made my heart and mind sing. Um, I have so many questions. We tried to sort that in my head, but I have one uh, that is tied. Um, if you think about the WPS the Women, Peace, and Security Agenda, the relationship between protection and participation, and what it means when there is so much happening that relies on these individuals, and there are certain vulnerabilities as women or otherwise. What has protection looked like? And then beyond like um, participation in local government and that kind of institutionalization, um, what examples um, might you be able to share of like movement building or alternative types of, I don't know, cooperatives or other coming together where it goes beyond the individual? Um, if you are able to share, that would be lovely. I realized I didn't choose the most strategic seat if I was actually going to ask a question. Samantha Schasberger from USAID, and I sit in our Democracy, Human Rights, and Governance Center. Um, and thank you so much for your presentations. It's been very thought-provoking for me. I will admit, um, coming to this from my background, I was struck by um, Putnam has a seminal work on making democracy work and talks a lot about social capital and volunteerism as well. And when we think about communities and the importance of volunteerism, both for democracy, for economic development, and for social cohesion. And so I was struck by the comment about working with the grain and this question of how does one not overwhelm? But also, you know, informal institutions are not bad. It's this question, right, of that balance of should one try and formalize, or how does one let the informal institutions, let the effective people be effective institutions, let them be agents, and keep the spirit of volunteerism that pulls communities together and helps people move forward. Um, and I was struck by the comment on resources, just that you know, time is a resource, energy is a resource. And, and so it's recognizing also that those are resources, 
Um, but as as an actor, as a donor, in terms of, of as one's thinking about this local actors and how to work with the grain um, and how to keep that that very important spirit there. Um, so, so I just kind of wanted to throw that out under the heading of there was a comment on formalizing and, you know, the many kind of steps that go into that and, and the idea of building a movement versus just letting it be that there are lots of actors, which can be many points of resilience, but then how do you help in terms of building on, um, and empowering in as much as you can without taking away any agency or being problematic? Thanks. Okay, great. So we've got four sort of good questions um, and uh, it's a kind of like dealer's choice as to who wants to answer them. We've got the, this, that really, I think, profound question about these kind of thousand points of light. Well, we're in the bush building, so we've got it. That's a um, phrase that we're of, the, the, of these efficacious personalities. How do you not smother them? We've got, which is a kind of a, adjacent to Nagar's question about sort of WPS social protection. We've got Camilla's really good question um, about how, and we put this in the papers, at a set of edited papers that M Melissa and Suave's paper is in that there's much for Papua New Guinea to teach the world um, in terms of successful conflict resolution and mitigation as well. We were in some settlements in Ley and the ability to use these kind of social capital to kind of sort of weave together, cement together um, work was really extraordinary. So I've got that question. Then we've got a kind of broader, more kind of strategic question about kind of sort of Indo-Pacific, uh, Papua New Guinea's role uh, in that from the from the floor so i'm going to throw it to ruth first which which of the questions would you like to would you like to give it a crack at and then i'll ask swabe and then i'll ask melissa i'll go for the last one <clears throat> so working with the agents that are all already doing the work in the community without sort of suffocating them or suppressing uh, the fluidity in the work that they're doing. Um, but then at the same time, we run the risk of uh, not supporting a program that can be sustainable. So it can work both ways. Um, you want them to be part of a structure so that it can be sustained. Um, because you're looking at one person the agency of one person, or should something happen to that person, then what happens to the efforts? Um, unless it is passed on, or unless it is part of a structure, then it can easily be taken up by another person that comes along. Um, and that's the challenge that uh, we face. But then Papua New Guinea is a relation, relational society. It's communal. What we do and how we do things is with the people that we know. So everyone is encouraged, as young as you are, by the time you're three years old, um, as, an, as a hella woman, I am encouraged by my family, by my mothers, that by the time I'm three, I'm supposed to have one or two uncles of mine that I already would start doing um, dealings with, whether I give them a pig or they give me something in return, and then I start doing exchange when I am five, I'm seven, I'm nine, eight, whatever it is. Um, but we, as young as we are, we are taught to start building on relationship. And that's what makes it um, I think Melissa touched on that earlier. Um, it's those networks that we build 
are the ones that actually helps us sustain us in that space that we find ourselves in to try to make something um, and, and start helping our communities. Even though it runs the risk of, again, going back to what I said earlier, runs the risk of not being sustained. Because should anything happen to me as a peace builder or a community organizer, then that's it. The efforts that I do will now um, can either be taken up by someone, but then um, it might not be taken up by someone because what I do might go with me. Um, and that's the risk that we run. But at the same time, it's also, we don't want to be, we don't want to, um, get these those efforts or those agencies and make them part of a structure that confines them, um, restricts them, restricts their the fluidity in which they are able to sort of network and pull in different lots of people because it's people that does the work and in, in Papua New Guinea we have a saying that it's not what you know but it's whom you know. Um, and though we also rely on uh, another statement called one talk system, um, for us it's not one talk system. Um, for us, it's the safety net. Um, the people that you know and you deal with, they are your safety net, and that's what we, as a as a as a society and as a as a as a people, that's we rely on other people. So if I am to set up something, then I bring in the people that I know, who will bring in the people they know, who will now bring in the people they know. So it's we go through the people we know to get the people that we don't know who should be part of the work that we're doing, and that's why it's really important that. Um, while we want to make these agencies part of a structure, we also want to support the work they're doing so that they are not hindered um, by, by bringing them into a rigid structure to say that, okay, this is how you apply for fundings and this is how you do reports and um, this is how you should be, you should be an entity and not an individual. Um, by doing that, we could also, like I said, suffocate the work that they're doing to the point that it might also be become meaningless. Okay, great. This is the catch-22, the sort of fundamental dilemma at the, the core of this. Swabi, are you still there? Oh, great. Um, do you want to talk about maybe about the sort of issue about sort of lay and how this sort of social capital, the Camilla's question, um, that there are in communities? And I'll give you the final question, which is the kind of broader strategic question. I know you as an anthropologist love answering questions like this. So. Um, yes, in Lee, um, people, I mean, tradition, I mean, culturally, we depend on each other for safety and everything. Um, when it comes to violence, what I noticed, because I work mostly in the community and I live also in the community, especially in the settlement, what I noticed when it comes to violence, um, men knows who they, they go for. They know their enemies and they go for them. They don't just come and, you know, attack anybody else. So, um, the last fight that we had, um, the election-related fight, now, there were women there, but the fight was just between men, and men got killed, and you know all those um, happenings came about. Women were just like pushed to the corner, or you know they they kind of pushed for safety somewhere, but with um, relatives or friends or something, and the violence occurred. So. Um, like Ruth said, we, we, 
we kind of um we know each other and we know our enemies too we know who are our friends and we know who are our enemies but when it comes to violence when men fight they they don't usually involve women they they fight themselves and women just move into places to keep, take cover and they go for safety with um other friends yeah so that's for um women's um, security at the community level but otherwise like when you see it from the outside it's like we are exposed to any danger there is no formal security provided to you know protect us um for the services that we have formal services that we have the the safe houses are usually for the um intimate partner violence women who survive intimate partner violence they usually take um protection and safety there but not with the you know community violence where there's a big fight and the women's um safety is at risk we don't we don't take uh, safety in in such um, environment that is um, available out there so the services are kind of um targeted targeted at the the pro programs that each institution is running and it's it's not open to you know accommodate other other type of violence i would say yeah so um that's with women's security but um going to the last question our friend asked about you know the community groups that are in the community most groups are informal and and they do things from you know out from passion they see issues and problems in the community and they get together to you know work together as a team voluntarily to address those issues but when it comes to resources um they find it difficult to access them even though like they have the government out there they usually go up to the offices to ask for assistance to you know do the do what they are doing at the community but they don't usually get um the resources that they need because they are informal in context so um most times the government usually tell them you go back and get yourself formalized get your groups registered and you know become a cbo or uh, an association or something and organize the registered group so we can be able to support you so these are the challenges that uh, you know community groups informal community groups are experiencing but when you look at it when when service providers like ngos or government when they get into the community to implement they usually utilize those people at the community and there is no um pay for the labor that they they're doing in the community so that's that's one thing that i see that's um, a bit unfair and injustice to the, the the people who are serving the community voluntarily but um I'm kind of uh, playing some little role in helping the community to understand how things work out, how they can connect to the formal system and get help from like either NGOs or donor agencies or government. So like if they have a group, you know, we we come and work together. Um find out about their interests, what they are looking at working on, and then we formalize help them formalize the group. and then we support them to go to appropriate you know service providers who have resources and then they get support from them and one of the examples of the group that i assisted and we 
um, supported them to get them formalized was uh, is the Human Rights Defenders Association of um, Papua New Guinea. Um, that was when I was with UN Women, and the members of that association were like um, village court magistrate, law and order committees. They were working like voluntarily in the communities in NCD, just serving like every other volunteers. They were struggling with resources like printing, typing of documents, and bringing those um, statements to the court to present it. Um, yeah. And um, we were having discussion. I was having discussion with them, and they came up with this um, um, initiative to get an association registered and get them formalized. So this is where um, I've seen one, you know, one local group, like a community group, getting themselves organized and formalize themselves to be able to, you know, have access to resources and funding from a bigger organization. Yeah. Great. Thank you. Um, Melissa, just the kind of the sort of wider sort of Papua New Guinea within the kind of Indo-Pacific world. And then Ruth, I'd like to ask you just to probably, we've got about five minutes left, but to um, to close just with some observations about the differences or and similarities that the, that you see between Morobe province, which we spent the last you know hour and a half discussing, and and Hela, um, where you are. And then we're going to close before I get to say good morning to people in Papua New Guinea because I know it's midnight very soon. All right, I think what I'm going to try to do is scale up from what Ruth and Zwabe have been talking about in order to ask this kind of strategic question. Um, it's already been observed by some of you, and I would agree that um, Morabe and, and Ley in particular is an extremely diverse city. People in Ley like to say all of Papua New Guinea is here because it has been a magnet for um, domestic in-migration for a long time. Um, and also when Zwabe and I were taking some of our uh, work back in uh, 2016, and 2017 to Port Moresby and showing pictures of churches in Ley to women in Port Moresby, um, the first thing that the women in Moresby observed was how di ethnically diverse the, the, the churches in Ley are. So this is, this is speaking to something that's always been an interest of mine, which is how enthusiastic people in Papua New Guinea are for making relationships with with others, right? Not not just in your own ethnic group, not just in your own church, um, but uh, people 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 outside. How do you make all these connections that Ruth is talking about that are actually what create safety, right? The more connections you have, the safer you are. The fewer connections you have, the more vulnerable you are. And this is true of you know people of any gender, people of any ethnic group in PNG. The more connections, the safer you are. The more the fewer connections, the, the more vulnerable you are. Now, let's scale that up, right? PNG wants connections with the rest of the Pacific. Traditionally, the connection is with Australia, um, the, the former colonial power. Um, and if you go back a little, it's a co complex colonial history. Scratch the surface of that, and the connections are with the UK and Germany, which are still there. Um, those are extant connections. Um, so those are the obvious ones for PNG, but PNG wants other connections that aren't just these small handful of countries. Um, and if you, again, I, I've, I've mentioned the Second World War, but if you go to the war cemetery in Ley, there's people from all over the world buried there. And that was, the, the engagement with the war for Papua New Guinea was both cataclysmic, obviously, it was a world war, 
um, but also a moment of discovery of people from all over the world who came to them, asked them to fight, asked them to help with the fight, um, and 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 was a moment of, I think, uh, intense learning about the potentiality of international connections for PNG. And this is something that PNG has always sought, and it will seek these connections with anybody who's willing to engage, again, as equals, yeah? Wokbun one time. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what what is sought now are connections with countries, yes, Australia, but not just Australia, who are willing to engage with PNG as an equal partner, whether it's in terms of economic efforts, whether it's in terms of fighting climate change, um, and whether it's in terms of... Um, you know, possibly resisting the blandishments of some of its more powerful neighbors. So this, but this is about connecting as 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 partners, right? Not we're going to tell you what to do. Um, Papua New Guinean, Papua New Guineans, from politicians right down to local community leaders, justifiably resist being instructed in how those relationships should work, which sometimes results in political actions that may look a little baffling to, to, to people who aren't there. But it's about finding people who are willing to engage and engage in a sustained way, not we're gonna do this one development project and leave, but we're gonna be partners for the long term. That's a very clever way of answering that question. Um, Ruth, just to close off with some thoughts on, on Hella, uh, and then we'll, we'll conclude in a, in, a, in a couple of minutes. So Hela is like a country on its own, even within Papua New Guinea. Hela province is actually, the name Hela is part of the name of one of the largest tribes in Papua New Guinea. It covers people in of five provinces, um, but the province, the Huli people got the name and then called their province um, Hela. Enga is part of Hela. Parts of Southern Islands is part of the Hela tribe. A parts of Western Province and Gulf Province, a part of the Hela tribe. Um, and these people traditionally are from five sons, five sons of Hela. Founded in um, 2012, um, Hela Province was part of the LNG ne negotiation. Um, the Hela people said, well, now we have the largest LNG find um, here in, in PNG, so we want our own province to be able to manage our own resources. So they got their province in, in 2012. They've got about four districts. Um, they've got Magarima, Koroba, Kopiago, Taripori, and um, Komohuli, or Hulia Komo. Um, and again, Hela province borders about five provinces, but there's only one road link. Um, and one, one thing I must also make clear here is that um, Ella is like at the dead end. So you drive to Ella, there's no other way. You, you, you come back the same way that you go in. Um, and that's that makes it really hard because it's not open. It makes it a very challenging place to be able to even policy. Um, speaking of Hela, Hela people speak one language. So it's the whole language. Whereas I think Morobe and Zuabe can correct me on this. Morobe speaks about 27 languages. The, re the reason why I talk about the languages is to give you a background into what working as a, a community activist in Papua New Guinea is like. You're dealing with more than 850 languages, and I'm not talking about dialects. Dialects in Papua New Guinea is about 2,000 plus. 
we own one six of the world's languages. So dealing with communities that have their own languages, um, it's really difficult because the way they interpret things is also different. So you've got to be embedded in that community to be able to come up with solutions meant for that community. That's why it's really important to support um, peace builders or champions from that community. Now, Hela, um, because it is one language speaking group, the tribes right across the five um, um, the five districts are actually they're interrelated or interconnected. Um, lately, since 2012, um, 2006, about when ExxonMobil went into um, the province, there was a lot of cash flows. Now, with the cash flows came a lot of problems as well. Now, this is a, a society that tolerated violence. They deal with, for them, um, conflict resolution meant taking it out on the battlefield first. Um, they don't negotiate. They don't have dialogues. Um, they actually do the action first and then talk about it later and then compensate if they killed the wrong person or misunderstood. So this is a society that thrived on violence. Now, they, in the 2000, when, when Exxon came and people started getting money, and, and by the way, 86% um, of um, the land in Papua New is owned by tribal, tribal um communities. So you can imagine Hela province is owned by tribal communities. So the tribes were paid their royalty. Now this is a society that never used to have, say, um, $30 a year. Now they were flooded with cash. They had hundreds of dollars that were passing through um, their community because they were getting the royalties. They were getting money from the government. Um, they were getting um, dues from the Department of Petroleum. And because money was coming into the community, um, it also not only, pe because people were not prepared for it, it actually produced or, or made a lot of um, people look for ways in which to spend their money. And one of the ways that they did was also started buying guns. Um, like I said earlier, this is a society that um, believed in tribal warfare. and. So they have their machetes and they have the bows and the arrows, but now they had the means to buy guns, which was more powerful than that. So right now in, in Hela, one of the biggest challenges is the pro proliferation of guns. All right. Um, thank you. Thank you, Ruth. I feel, I feel bad to sort of almost to cut you off in mid-flow because you're so fluid and so elegant in the way that you the way that you speak and I was so much listening to you I wasn't paying attention to the time where it's we've gone four minutes over so without further ado I'm going to thank our three speakers you can find Zwabe and Ruth uh, on our on our website um, you can find Melissa on the St Andrews website all three of them have just got wonderful insights and um, thank you all for for, uh, for getting up early and for uh, for staying up late and thank you to everyone here and and online goodbye Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts. Mm -hmm.